You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, August 18th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we will be reading the following articles. Filling the Gaps in Our Food System by Matt Mainpaw. Cinema 101 by Michael J. Casey. The Dark Underbelly of Denver by Bart Shaneman. Pouring a Perfect Pilsner by Matt Mainpaw. Calming Cows by Will Brenza. Letters by Will Brenza. Filling Gaps in Our Food System. Colorado's Grain Chain Highlights Community Over Commodity by Matt Mainpaw. On the horizon, storm clouds roll in over the San Luis Valley, the occasional flash of lightning painting the edge of the sky. The weather provides palpable relief from the late July heat, while the promise of rain is a blessing for farmers in the notoriously arid region. A few dozen people stand in a field of barley beside the local farmer who grew it. The group is part of Grain School in the Field, a collaboration between University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, UCCS, the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, RMFU, and the Colorado Grain Chain, CGC. Grain School in the Field offers a two-day immersive education course in the intricacies of San Luis Valley's community and food systems, highlighting the relationships between growers, producers, and consumers. The idea that food should be community, not commodity, is one of the deriving motivations of CGC, a nonprofit focused on restoring heirloom grain diversity and building connections between the land and the people who sustain it. From the beginning now, the mission is to strengthen those connections between farmers, millers, and end consumers to really lift up Colorado's local grain industry, says Audrey Powell, marketing specialist for CGC. Later, Grain School in the Field would bring its cohort of curious individuals, educators, and researchers to Mountain Mama Milling in Monte Vista. Run by Chris Gosar, the mill is a generational affair. Gosar took over from his parents, now sharing responsibilities with the next generation. The stone ground flour mill still produces thousands of pounds of fresh flour for the San Luis Valley and beyond. My parents believed in growing great grains and milling whole grain flour, Gosar says. That's what they believed in, that's what we started with, that's where we're at. Mountain Mama used to deliver stone ground flowers as far north as Denver, supplying mom and pop stores with locally grown grain back in the 80s. But the growth of natural food grocers like Whole Foods and Vitamin Cottage saw those shops close. Gosar's family eventually sold the farm where he grew up, he says, and the family that bought it still grows grain for them. Other grains come in from small family farms throughout the valley, milled by Gosar and sent out to bakeries and small community stores in the region. The demand for wheat skyrocketed during the pandemic, Gosar explains, a demand now exacerbated by Russia's war with Ukraine. The need for more grain has run afoul of rising water costs and drought conditions for farmers in the valley, he adds but they are surviving through the stress and unpredictability of crop yields. I'm all in. I like it when systems get shaken up, Gosar says. I think there's an opportunity. We've gained customers and a lot of visibility from all the people baking in their home kitchens. 
Stories like Gosar's are common, but most people are far removed from the sources of the food they consume. Organizations like CGC are working to highlight these stories, bringing a sense of literacy and propriety for consumers, growers, and everyone in between. There's so much grain chain activity flourishing in Boulder County. A huge part of our membership is in that area, Powell says. Yet, so many of the grains used throughout Colorado are actually sourced from the San Luis Valley. In Boulder County and along the Front Range, CGC has members like Troubadour Maltings in Fort Collins. Troubadour malts the grains like an heirloom white Sonoran wheat used in whiskey made by Dryland Distillers in Longmont, another CGC member. That grain is grown on Arnsuch Farms in Keensburg, a mere 40 miles away from Longmont. I think it's really special to know you're eating something that's actually supporting our community in Colorado, Powell says. The more we support it, the more accessible it can be. I think it's very important that locally sourced foods are accessible. But to get there, we need all sectors to be aware of our local capacity. That awareness can be evidenced in Moxie Bread Company, whose co-founder, Andy Clark, was also a founder of CGC. Clark, who baked for Whole Foods for more than a decade before starting Moxie, was teaching a baking class focused on heirloom and whole grains when he was approached about joining the CGC Board of Directors as the nonprofit was forming. Grain School are these folks passionate about local food systems, healthy foods, and preserving the old ways, Clark says. So the CGC really percolated out of that. Moxie had already been procuring grains from family farms and milling fresh flour before CGC was officially formed, Clark says. So it was easy enough for him to step into the role of board chairman. When Clark first opened Moxie, he developed a partnership with a farm in western Kansas, connecting the farm to both the miller and baker, and vice versa. Clark and his family would visit to help with the harvest directly. The start of it was getting farm fresh grain, which had been hard for me to do up to that point, Clark says. From there, we met a variety of other farmers, encouraged some farmers in Colorado and neighboring states to consider planting heritage grains for Moxie. Supporting local farms is important in strengthening communities and reducing the distance food travels to reach someone's table. With supply chain issues that grew more evident during the early days of the pandemic, Clark says he saw more people turn to their local farms and mills for produce, dairy, and flour they couldn't find in a grocery store. Restoring that local food network is key to CGC, as well as the mill and bakery at Moxie, he explains, so long as it is accessible and egalitarian. We're very conscientious not to be pretentious about it. That's not my style. That's not Moxie's style, Clark says. We're a very community-driven place. To bring that into balance, echoing Powell, Clark wants to bring more education and awareness to locally grown goods. Residents can find a strong local food system in Boulder County, from stalwarts like Black Cat Farms to small farm stands scattered throughout the county selling eggs, grains, and produce. One doesn't need to drive to the San Luis Valley to see each link of CGC in action, when so much is active on the Front Range. The organization is still in its infancy, but Pow is hopeful about the future. Because we're kind of new, this role that the grain chain is trying to fill in connecting all these dots, there are all these gaps within our food system, Pow says. There are a lot of places for work to be done, so it's going to keep us busy. Cinema 101, 2022. The Year Cinephilia Bottomed Out and Then Rose Again, by Michael J. Casey. I guess you could say the low point arrived on March 27, 2022, with the broadcast of the 94th Academy Awards. No, the slap heard round the world wasn't it, though that cast a pall over the proceedings, didn't it? 
but the constant, almost jubilant belittlement cinema received by the very ceremony created to champion it. Here at the Oscars, where movie lovers unite and watch TV, host Wanda Sykes said in a scripted intro, they weren't all great, host Amy Schumer said of the nominated movies. I didn't see many, any of them. I didn't see them. Animation was maligned as mere kitty fare. A handful of production awards were handed out while the stars were still walking the red carpet. And there was that whole hashtag Oscars fan favorite thing. All this after two years of a pandemic that disrupted productions, neutered releases, and shuttered the very spaces moviegoers called home for over a century. Not that things were that rosy in the first place. A rise in fanboy culture poisoned the well, turning casual discourse into coordinated toxic affairs, while the streaming wars eroded the viability of communal conversation. Back before the launch of Netflix Instant in 2007, the DVD mailing service offered a massive catalog of films from far and wide, old and new, for a relatively low price and the convenience of having the movies come to you. Before that was Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, and a battery of mom-and-pop rental shops across the U.S. Before them were film societies, second-run theaters, and art house cinemas connected to museums and universities. It might take some doing, but the best movies, new and old, mainstream and underground, domestic and foreign, were never out of reach. That was then. These days, streamers' catalogs are so limited that the typical viewer subscribes to multiple services to keep pace. Once were the days when even the most casual moviegoer could watch the best picture nominees. Now, you're SOL if you have a Hulu account, but not Apple TV+. Has cinephilia ever felt this fractured? Darkest Before the Dawn Yet there is hope, and it comes in the shape of a British film magazine. This November, Sight and Sound will announce its once-a-decade poll of the greatest films of all time. Invited critics, programmers, academics, distributors, and writers from around the globe submit ballots of what they consider to be the ten greatest movies, with the definition of the word greatest left up to each individual. From these ballots, sight and sound tabulate the frequency of each title to determine a list approaching definitive. Officially, the tradition dates back to 1952, when 63 critics dubbed Vittorio De Sica's neorealist masterpiece, Bicycles Thieves, the best. Ten years later, 70 respondents to Sight and Sound's call placed Citizen Kane on the pedestal, a spot it would occupy until 2012, when 846 respondents from 73 countries knocked Kane out in favor of Vertigo. Interestingly, the roots of the poll can be found in a 1941 Sight and Sound column, Quiz on Film Classics. There, writer Charles Oakley opined that the larger movie-going audience lacked critical appreciation. They have little understanding of why they liked or did not like the film, partly, no doubt, because their reactions to it were mainly emotional but partly also because they have never been given any guidance on how to make films, Oakley wrote. His solution? Teach film appreciation. This can be done by selecting, say, 10 outstanding fiction films for screening as classics in schools, and by preparing a textbook for teachers. Oakley was on to something. His suggestion of a top 10 is part of a long lineage of list-making and discussion. The titles Oakley chose elicited passionate letters from readers, enough that Sight and Sound decided to make more of it. Eight decades later, here we are. Turning Content into Conversation One of the upsides of Sight and Sound's poll is that the results are a starting point. I became aware of Sight and Sound's top 10 after the 2002 results were published. Nine I'd seen, so I sought out the blind spot, Yasujiro Ozu's remarkable Tokyo story. It opened a door in my soul. When the 2012 results were published, Sight and Sound ran the top 10 alongside the top 100 vote-getters. 
A few weeks later, Sight and Sound posted all 2045 nominees. Titles leaped off the page and into my queue. The Mirror, Showa, Tokibuki, The Color of Pomegranates, Barry Lyndon, the list went on. One of the thrills in anticipating Sight and Sound's 2022 poll is the thought of how many movies I will encounter because of their inclusion. There's a chance that this year's poll will further codify the cinematic canon by retaining the same titles and filmmakers it always has. There's also a chance that this year's poll will tear all that down in favor of a new list that moves cinematic appreciation out of the 20th century. Either way, the poll, in its traditional 10 titles and expanded version, whatever that count may be, is destined to launch a thousand reactions, corrections, and appreciations. Whether it was Oakley's aim to encapsulate the history of the seventh art, or to entice viewers into cinematic exploration with his quiz on film classics, it appears he accomplished both. Cinema 101 I've been writing about movies for over a decade now. Along the way, I've been asked countless times what the best movie is. Citizen Kane is the easy answer, and maybe the correct one. And what my favorite movie is changes frequently. It might be Kane these days. Then there are the questions of what to watch, be it what's in theaters now, or where to start with a particular filmmaker, genre, or industry. I adore these questions because the options are so varied. Sure, I want you to watch the best movies, but I'd rather you watch the movies that make you excited to watch more movies. So, in anticipation of Sight and Sound's poll, and the spirit of students returning to school, I give you my list. Cinema 101, a trip through 141 years of movies. Some of the titles are familiar, some you might find peculiar. All, I think, are worth your time. But I suppose that's up for you to decide. A few notes. Defining what is and is not a movie in 2022 can be tricky. Is it exhibition, duration, style? Some serialized shows, Twin Peaks, The Return, True Detective, etc., look and behave like long movies. Read reviews and you'll see the word cinematic tossed around like it means something. Then there are those works that debut at film festivals, move to streaming, and win Emmys. More still are produced by streaming services, play a theater for one week in New York or LA, and get nominated for 11 Oscars. The definitions are bleaching. To streamline matters, I've chosen movies that most will recognize as a movie-going experience. Krzysztof Kieslowski's incomparable Decalogue may have played theaters here and there, but it was made for Polish television and is most likely to be experienced by anyone discovering it today as 10 separate episodes. It's incredible, but you won't find it listed here. You will, however, find Kieslowski's magnificent Three Colors trilogy, Blue, White, and Red, listed as one. Yes, they are three separate movies, and you may watch them as such, but I find it impossible to think of one without the others. Not so with Star Wars and The Godfather, one title for each franchise. My rules, you see, are arbitrary. I've also grouped a handful of early shorts as the 101st entry. A couple of them can stand as individual works shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the list. But I find that watching them together provides a much deeper understanding of cinema's early days. You will see a visual language form before your very eyes. What's missing? Plenty. I started this list with about 3,000 titles, so you can imagine the sheer depth of what was left off. As I called, I wondered if a second list, perhaps called So Dear to My Heart, might be necessary. But a second would lead to a third, a fourth, and so on. Like the universe, cinema is expanding. The beauty is in the sharing. Cinema is never dead, but love for the form and interest in its ability to communicate waxes and wanes in cycles. Today feels low, but I think tomorrow holds promise. 
As long as we keep watching and talking, things are bound to get better. Cinema 101, the movies. One, eight and a half, Fellini, 1963. Two, Afterlife, Corey Eda, 1998. Three, Apocalypse Now, Coppola, 1979. Four, An Autumn Afternoon, Ozu, 1962. Five, Babette's Feast, Axel, 1987. Six, The Battle of the Century, Bruckman, 1927. Seven, Beau Travail, Dennis, 1999. Eight, Bicycle Thieves, De Sica, 1948. Nine, Bonnie and Clyde, Penn, 1967. Ten, Born in the Flames, Borden, 1983. Eleven, Bowling for Columbine, Moore, 2002. Twelve, Breathless, Godard, 1960. Thirteen, Camera Person, Johnson, 2016. Fourteen, Casablanca, Cortez, 1942. Fifteen, Charade, Donan, 1963. Sixteen, Chimes at Midnight, Wells, 1965. Seventeen, Chinatown, Polanski, 1974. Eighteen, Citizen Kane, Wells, 1941. Nineteen, Come and See, Klimov, 1985. Twenty, Cries and Whispers, Bergman, 1972. Twenty-one, Day for Night, Truffaut, 1973. Twenty-two, Do the Right Thing, Lee, 1989. Twenty-three, Don't Look Back, Penn Baker, 1967. Twenty-four, Double Indemnity, Wilder, 1944. Twenty-five, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Gondry, 2004. Twenty-six, The Five Obstructions, Von Trier slash Leth, 2003. Twenty-seven, The General, Keaton slash Bruckman, 1926. Twenty-eight, Girlfriends, Wheel, 1978. Twenty-nine, The Gleaners and I, Varda, 2000. Thirty, The Godfather, Coppola, 1972. Thirty-one, Gone with the Wind, Fleming, 1939. Thirty-two, Goodfellas, Scorsese, 1990. Thirty-three, Grand Illusion, Renoir, 1937. Thirty-four, Grave of the Fireflies, Takahata, 1988. Thirty-five, The Great Director, Chaplin, 1940. Thirty-six, A Hard Day's Night, Lester, 1964. Thirty-seven, Hiroshima Monamu, Rene, 1959. Thirty-eight, The House is Black, Farokzad, 1963. Thirty-nine, House of Flying Daggers, Imo, 2004. 40. The Hustler, Rawson, 1961. 41. Inside Lewin Davis, Cone slash Cone, 2013. 42. Inside Out, Doctor, 2015. 43. Jaws, Spielberg, 1975. 44. Jean Dielman, 23 Croix du Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles, Ackerman, 1975. 45. Kiss Me Deadly, Aldrich, 1955. 46. La Dolce Vita, Fellini, 1960. 47. The Lady Eve, Sturges, 1941. 48. The Last Waltz, Scorsese, 1978. 49. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Powell slash Pressburger, 1943. 50. The Long Goodbye, Altman, 1973. 51. Los Angeles Plays Itself, Anderson, 2003. 52. Leon Marin, Priest, Melville, 1961. 53. Mad Max Fury Road, Miller, 2015. 54. A Man Escaped, Bresson, 1956. 55. The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Ritherman slash Lounsbury, 1977. 56. A Matter of Life and Death, Powell slash Pressburger, 1946. 57. Merrily We Go to Hell, 
Arzner, 1932. 58. A Moment of Innocence, Mach Malbaf, 1996. 59. Mulholland Drive, Lynch, 2001. 60. My Man Godfrey, La Cava, 1936. 61. The Naked Kiss, Fuller, 1964. 62. Soleil O, Hondo, 1970. 63. On the Bowery, Rogosin, 1956. 64. On the Waterfront, Kazan, 1954. 65. Once Upon a Time in the West, Lyon, 1968. 66. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino, 2019. 67. The Oxbow Incident, Wellman, 1942. 68. The Passion of Joan of Arc, Dreyer, 1928. 69. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Pekinpa, 1973. 70. Pharaoh, Kowalerowitz, 1966. 71. The Piano, Campion, 1993. 72. Pickpocket, Bresson, 1959. 73. Point Blank, Borman, 1967. 74. Police Story, Chan, 1985. 75. Psycho, Hitchcock, 1960. 76. The Purple Rose of Cairo, Allen, 1985. 77. Rashomon, Kurosawa, 1950. 78. The Red Shoes, Powell slash Pressburger, 1948. 79. The Searchers, Ford, 1956. 80. Shoah, Landsman, 1985. 81. Some Like It Hot, Wilder, 1959. 82. Spirited Away, Miyazaki, 2001. 83. Star Wars, Lucas, 1977. 84. Steamboat Willie, Ewerks, 1928. 85. Summer with Monica, Bergman, 1953. 86. Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, Murnau, 1927. 87. Tangerine, Baker, 2015. 88. Taxi Driver, Scorsese, 1976. 89. The Three Colors Trilogy, Kieslowski, 1993-94. 90. Tukibuki, Mambeti, 1973. 91. The Tree of Life, Malik, 2011. 92. On Chien Andalou, Bunuel, 1929. 93. The Up Documentaries, Almond slash Apted, 1964-2018. 94. Vagabond, Varda, 1985. 95. Vertigo, Hitchcock, 1958. 96. Vive Savier, Goddard, 1962. 97. Wajda, Almansur, 2012. 98. Wall E, Stanton, 2008. 99. The Watermelon Woman, Dunye, 1996. 100. The Wizard of Oz, Fleming, 1939. 101. Early Shorts, Sally Gardner at a Gallop, Moybridge, 1878. Traffic Crossing Leeds Bridge, Le Prince, 1888. The Arrival of a Train at La Ciotat, Lumiere, 1897. A Trip to the Moon, Melier, 1902. The Great Train Robbery, Porter, 1903. The Dancing Pig, 1907. Falling Leaves, Guy Blache, 1912. Suspense, Weber slash Smalley, 1913. Gertie the Dinosaur, McKay, 1914. For more, tune into After Image Fridays at 3 p.m. on KGNU 88.5 FM and online at kgnu.org. Email questions or comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. The Dark Underbelly of Denver. Noir Anthology Gets Down in the Gutter of the Mile High City by Bart Shaneman. The postcard version of Denver might look like a brilliant orange and blue sunset gleaming over the Rockies. Beautiful young people in parks walking their dogs, everybody a mile high. 
Look a little deeper, or just take a drive down Colfax Avenue, and a different city appears. The second version is the one that shows up in Denver Noir, an anthology out this summer by Akashic Books. Akashic has been publishing this series since 2004, with more than 100 city noir titles so far. In this collection of stories, 14 writers with a connection to the city explore the underside of different areas in the greater Denver area, from Aurora to Lakewood, and many parts in between. The collection was edited by Denver writer and editor Cynthia Swanson. She says, Denver makes for a good city as a setting for noir writing because of that juxtaposition between light and dark. We're living in this beautiful location with 300 days of sunshine a year, and yet there is a darkness to this city, she says. There's a darkness to every city, but there is a particular darkness and grittiness to Denver that a lot of people don't see. Peter Heller, who has a story in the collection about a murderous paddleboarder on Sloan's Lake, agreed with that assessment. He pointed out that although Denver can be photogenic, it's not always what it seems. In places that do appear like postcards, there's always a dark underbelly, he says. And it really helps if you're going to write noir stories, if there are all sorts of crossed currents of different cultures, different demographics, different classes, when the motivations of the population in the city are all crisscrossing currents going all sorts of different directions and clashing. To build on that, Erica Wirth, another Denver-based writer, says that the marginalized populations that are in conflict with much of the change happening in this city also fit with the tradition of noir writing. There has always been a large Latinx and or Native American population that just doesn't get talked about much under the veneer of the hiking, biking influx from California, she says. What makes it so perfect for noir today is the dynamic has increased tenfold, Worth adds. Houses have become so intensely expensive, and the city has become tremendously desirable, and so the class stratification has grown huge. Worth's story features a Native American private investigator and the now-closed White Horse Bar in Lakewood. The book is broken into three sections, The Longest Wickedest Street, 5280, and Things to Do in Denver When You're Young. There's murder in Capitol Hill, death and jazz at five points, and even a comic, think a chapter in a graphic novel about a shooting in Baker. The stories are consistently dark and violent, what you would expect from a noir book. Where it goes further is in the characters, cultures, and milieus it explores. It's not just a book about a hard-boiled white male detective. A wide swath of the people of Denver are represented. Protagonists include Native American lawyers, queer women, and Latinx families. When Akashic approached Swanson to edit the anthology, the publishing company asked her to include a mix of established writers and others who are early in their career. They also asked for a balance of male and female writers, as well as mystery and literary styles. They also want people from different backgrounds, she says. I did a lot of digging around to find who might fit that criteria. Swanson's story is about Cheeseman Park, which was once a cemetery, and a young woman, disguised as a boy, who helps to excavate the bodies when the city decides a park would be more attractive. Cheeseman was the pauper cemetery, Swanson says. So there was really nobody that wanted to exhume those bodies or claim those bodies, because most of those people didn't have family or anybody that really cared. She decided the best person to tell the story was from the perspective of one of the young grave diggers, a fictional character. It doesn't get much darker, more noir, than the story about digging up skeletons. The detail of human remains being removed and placed into child-sized caskets was taken from real life. As far as themes that emerged from the collection, Swanson says she wasn't surprised that a handful of the stories were set on or around Colfax Avenue where prostitution, drug dealing, and violence were once commonplace and not unheard of now. 
The section about things to do in Denver when you're young came out of a feeling that the frontier nature of the city has always been a beacon for youth. Denver is, in a lot of ways, a city of young people, Swanson says. That theme came into play throughout a lot of the book. Cynthia Swanson's Book Recommendations When I was asked by Boulder Weekly to recommend five favorite books, I couldn't resist sharing titles by these amazing Denver noir authors. In addition to these recommendations, make sure to check out novels by Denver noir authors Mario Acevedo, Amy Dreyer, Peter Heller, Barbara Nicholas, and Erica T. Wirth, as well as stories and essays by Francelia Belton, D.L. Cordero, and Tuana Latrice Hill. Winter Counts by David Heska Wanbley Waden. Set on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota with scenes in Denver, this is the story of Virgil Wounded Horse, enforcer of vigilante justice, who must come to his own aid when his young nephew is hospitalized after a heroin overdose, and Virgil sets out to find those responsible for drug trade on the reservation. A People's History of Heaven by Mathangi Subramanian. A beautiful story that explores friendship, mothers and daughters, and coming of age, featuring five girls growing up in a slum in Bangalore, India. Angels in the Wind by Manuel Ramos. Nominated for the 2022 Seamus Award, this compelling PI story also has a personal heartfelt touch as Denver-based investigator Gus Corral searches the eastern Colorado plains for his cousin's missing 17-year-old son. What Did I Miss? Days of Our Lives by R. Allen Brooks and Corey Redford. A collection of comics from the weekly Colorado Sun feature, recognized by the Society of Professional Journalists as one of the top editorial comic strips in the Rocky Mountain region. The Fireballer by Mark Stevens. This one is a bit of a cheat, since I haven't read it yet. Releases January 2023. But being a huge fan of Mark's writing, and with an endorsement from William Kent Kruger that not just recommends, but insists that this baseball story is one to read, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Pouring a Perfect Pilsner. Grossenbart's Best in Show Beer, The Perfect Pills, by Matt Mainpa. Much ink has been spilled on Colorado beer, discussing at length hop varietals, yeast strains, and an industry that continues to grow. When I took over this column, I had no intention to add to the discourse on beer, yet here I am. I couldn't help myself. With the Great American Beer Fest just a couple months away, I've been preparing thinking about what makes a good beer, let alone a perfect one. In an instance of fortunate timing, a local brewery topped a list on the best pilsners in Colorado, so I thought I'd visit them to find out what made it perfect. As part of its blind tasting series, ranking Colorado beers based on merits in an individual class, PorchDrinking.com released its list of the best pilsners in Colorado. Out of 28 entries, only nine placed in the tasting, and only two of those pilsners earned best in show, Denver's Ratio Beerworks and Longmont's Grossenbart Brewery. Grossenbart's German-style pilsner is called Perfect Pils, so I dropped by the brewery to chat with owner Taylor Wise and brewer Kevin Paquette to find out what goes into a perfect pilsner. Honestly, it's the ingredients, Paquette says. We use only German ingredients, and you have to get the right yeast strain. From there, it's about the execution. Pilsners are notably crisp and clean, a refreshing beer that's easy to drink year-round. Grossenbart's Perfect Pils hits those notes and then some. The body is light, with a golden color and clarity to it that certainly adds to the appeal. The mouthfeel rests easy on the tongue, with enough carbonation to bring out the malty, biscuity flavors one should expect from a pilsner. I trust the judges that put the beer through its paces, but I'm inclined to agree. It's a pretty perfect pilsner. My rule is to keep it simple, Paquette says. 
every step that you're doing, you just pay attention to the details. I think a lot of brewers just overthink it. The name itself, a fortuitous coincidence, wasn't even picked by the brewery staff. A regular customer was sampling it while Wyas and Paquette mulled over names. We were trying to come up with a name, and he just looks at us and says, It's perfect, Paquette says. I thought, why don't we just call it GB's Perfect Pills, Wise adds. It ended up being pretty perfect, but that was all him. We didn't actually name it. Pilsners aren't Grossenbart's only notable brew. Last year, the brewery made it on the best-in-show list for porchdrinking.com's blind tasting of Colorado's Marzens, the German-style lager popularized by Oktoberfest. That was pretty badass, Wise says. Grossenbart's Marzen returns in just a few weeks to kick off Colorado's slate of Oktoberfest festivals, with the beer expected to be released by September 3rd. The brewery is also returning to the St. Bridget Celtic Festival in Frederick with its Irish Red Ale. The festival took a break during the pandemic, but returns September 24th with beer and whiskey. We've been the main beer sponsor for that for a few years, Wise says. We haven't decided if we're going to pull out something classic or try something new. You won't find Grossenbart cans or bottles in your local liquor store, though a few kegs can be found on tap at bars around the county. Best to stop by the tap room in Longmont to sample perfect pills yourself, and maybe take a crowler home for later. Calming Cows Feeding hemp to cattle is safe for consumers, new research suggests, and it's actually good for the cows, too. By Will Brenza Happy cows stay healthier and produce better meat and dairy. Stressed cows, like stressed humans, suffer from weight loss, weakened immune systems, digestive problems, reduced appetites, and reduced reproductive capacity. Meaning, cattle farmers have good reasons to invest in the happiness for their bovines. Recent research from Kansas State University, KSU, may have identified a new means for farmers to achieve that for their cattle. A means that's almost as obvious as it could be revolutionary. Hemp may be a natural way to decrease stress and inflammation related to production practices, Michael Kleinheitz says. Kleinheitz is a researcher and assistant professor of beef production medicine at KSU. His lab focuses on pain management and stress mitigation for livestock, and he was curious how industrial hemp could be used within that context. The feds were curious too. In 2020, the Department of Agriculture, DOA, granted Kleinhen's research team $200,000 to investigate whether feeding hemp to livestock was safe or if it would result in unacceptable levels of cannabinoids in animal products, meaning any level. Hemp is the non-psychoactive cousin of marijuana. It likewise produces cannabinoids like CBD, CBGA, and CBDA, molecules gaining popularity for their medicinal qualities reducing pain, aiding sleep, and of course, relieving anxiety. No one had ever experimented with hemp as a feed supplement for cattle before, so Kleinhens stepped up to the plate. With the DOA grant money, he and his team set out to answer the question, does feeding hemp to beef and dairy cows result in contaminated products? For the study, Kleinhens and his team used 16 Holstein steers half of which ate regular, control feed, while the other half got a healthy dose of high CBDA hemp. CBDA has a similar molecular structure to anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, and is anecdotally even more effective at treating inflammation, insomnia, epilepsy, nausea, and anxiety than CBD. The KSU team of researchers observed the cattle for two straight weeks, tracking the cow's movements and taking blood samples to monitor biomarkers for stress like cortisol and prostaglandins. Not only did they find that feeding hemp to cows doesn't permanently contaminate the meat or dairy they produce, but they unexpectedly discovered that doing so actually improves their health. 
Cattle in the hemp group demonstrated an 8.8% reduction in prostaglandin E2 concentrations from baseline compared to a 10.2 increase from baseline observed in the control group, the study's abstract reads. It also notes that the hemp-eating cows spent more time lying down, which improves cows' health and actually makes dairy cows more productive. These results suggest that feeding industrial hemp with a high CBDA content for 14 days increases lying behavior and decreases biomarkers of stress and inflammation in cattle, the abstract concludes. We didn't think we would see stress reduction to the degree of what we saw, Kleinhen says. We most definitely didn't expect to see any differences in the lying behavior, and the anti-inflammatory component was kind of a surprise to us as well. Kleinhems is excited about the implications of this research. The discovery could help farmers reduce anxiety levels during stressful times in the cattle's lives, like during transportation or weaning, when the cows are separated from their mothers. If hemp can be fed to cattle ahead of these events, Kleinhems is hopeful that it could significantly improve their overall health. But is it an ethical way of addressing the problem? Could it enable inhumane cattle operations to continue mishandling their animals? Number one, I unfortunately work with too many producers that I could see that there could be the effect. But I think those people in our industry are going away, Kleinhen says. Number two, you can't feed enough hemp to a cow to make up for a poor diet or substandard housing conditions. People can and will argue those points until the cows come home. But the fact remains, Kleinhen's research indicates a useful tool for cattle farmers to make cows less stressed, something that isn't pharmaceutical or technological. We wanted to be able to maybe provide something that would be a little more natural for producers to use or reduce stress, he says. We did make big steps in that regard. There is a lot more research that needs to be done on this topic, though, Kleinhen's notes. When do we need to actually start applying these things to reach the maximum benefit? Is it just a one-off thing, or do cows need to be fed a handful of days before that stressful event? How much hemp is good? Are we going to reach a point where we could see some detrimental effects? Obviously, a lot of questions linger, but Kleinhems and his team are already planning follow-up studies to answer them. Letters 8.18.22 by Will Brenza Astute, sensible, and humane. My oldest three children will begin their senior, junior, and sophomore years of high school in the next few days. As much as I would like to give a pitch about how they need to see leaders who look like them in positions like HD10 to admire and emulate as they start to imagine who they would like to grow up to be, I must make a small confession. I was not much older than the age my children are now when I had them, and the journey of providing for them and finding my own social justice voice has involved a lot of trying, a lot of shut professional doors, and a lot of grief from candidates that have not lived up to the stances they negotiated their votes on, and or who are trying to bail before they've even found their footing in their current roles. I need Junie Joseph to win this democratic state for me, and for people like me, who are raising families and scared for their safety, who are working multiple jobs yet struggling to survive, here and who share the weight and impact of actively trying to fix enduring systems of long-held racial and social inequities. I have canvassed and called on behalf of Democratic candidates for the bulk of the last two decades, and I know we will not find someone so astute, sensible, and humane as Junie Joseph. Junie is advocating beside parents in the peak of the largest trauma that many of these families will ever face. Junie is out there in the streets marching for reproductive health rights with us. Junie Joseph means what she says, and she is more than just talk. Junie's rise to HD10 will be the least disruptive, and frankly, Junie Joseph is what Boulder needs. Martha R. Wilson, Boulder. Community Concern Over Economic Ambition the University of Colorado's thirst for expansion speaks more to its success as a corporate business than as an institution of higher learning. Boulder was a pioneer in environmental protections. 
height restrictions, a blue line preventing development in the lower foothills, and the acquisition of open land were enacted to preserve a quality of life for residents. An eight-story hotel is under construction on the hill, with a convention center planned kitty corner at the intersection of University and Broadway. As in its push for a South Campus, CU is interested only in itself. The disregard of increased traffic congestion and pollution in neighborhoods and the climate issues of a larger carbon footprint and water use in a future of rising temperatures and extended drought is disrespectful not only of the citizens of Boulder, but of the quality of life across the earth. Sadly, the current city council is on board. With the uncertainty of future climate change, broader community concern should be at the forefront, not economic ambition. Robert Porath, Boulder. Not just any dog can dine. I walked by McDevitt Taco Supply, and there were five dogs in the cramped outside patio dining area by the door. I would not want them inside any local restaurants. I'm a dog lover, have had several, and my last one of 15 years was a service dog who was always with me in restaurants, calmly parked under the table. She was with me at work, on public transportation, medical offices, etc. Somehow, people in restaurants felt entitled to come up to me and tell me my dog wasn't allowed and they didn't like it. Or their kid was allergic and more important than me. My disability isn't obvious, but my certified service dog had noticeable identification. Now, though, there's more understanding, acceptance, and signage regarding service dogs in public places. I think going the other way, letting any dog into a restaurant, is foolish. In general, pets are not trained to remain in place in a busy, noisy environment, to ignore other dogs and people, to not go after food on the floor or elsewhere. Service dogs have many months or years even to adapt to distractions and to answer their owner's needs. Letting untrained pets into restaurants is a recipe for disaster. An interesting topic, John. You are one of the main reasons I faithfully pick up the weekly. A. Pruitt, Boulder. Email letters at boulderweekly.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Bruni. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.